Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. What a gift being here. I love being with Josh. Gosh. I know you do. I was, uh, and there was a time not long ago when the sun did shine and the sower sowed and the rain did rain and the crops did grow. It was a, a time before machinery, a time before certainty time before we bought the lie, a time before the farmer died, when we had trusting hearts and human soul. Um, we sang that song earlier, this garden's going to grow, and uh, it'll take time, and time can move so slow, but this garden's going to grow. I think sometimes what happens, I remember reading Wendell Berry when I wrote Farmer in the Field, and I wrote that from the context of reading his writings prophesying to the future of America that one day we would realize what we did in the 50s by destroying the farming population and creating machines that would make our food. One day in the future, we'd realize that our need for certainty, right? Cert because, well, sometimes, you know, the sun and the, these are mercy gifts, right? That's what Merton called them, sun and rain which means mercy gifts are always unpredictable. So let's create predictability and certainty out of our world. And it f- seemed philanthropic, you know? Hey, we could, we could get machines to make our food, and then nobody would starve, and we could make as much food as we want, and we wouldn't have to depend on sun and rain anymore. And he says, one day in the future, people will realize that our need for certainty is actually poisoning us. And then what we'll want to do is we'll want to raise up farmers again. But what we'll realize is it's difficult to raise up a farmer in a two-week or two-month or two-year program. Farmers have to be raised to the trade. Because why? Because values have to be instilled in them. Real, true, organic farming, which is a lot of what we do in the kingdom. A lot of what Jesus actually teaches us. It takes time. It takes time to raise a poet, right? To bring language, right? It takes time. What do you mean it takes? It takes time to develop a circular thinker. It takes time. It takes time. And uh, I think about that sometimes. The machinery even... And we know this, worship leaders, and we chatted yesterday. We, we know this intuitively. The machinery of worship, it can be a wonderful thing. But the danger of it is that it speeds us along in, at such a rate in our expression that, you know, as if the expression is what really matters to God. But it's not the expression that matters to God. I mean, I think God receives our expression. But what he loves is our activity. 
What he longs for is our activity. What he longs for is just think about the world, how quickly it would change if all over the world, just every Christian lived actively what they express in song on a Sunday. If we lived it actively. And then what if our living active? That's what I love about being around active worshipers. You can go anywhere with active worshipers. Active worshipers, you can read a poem and they'll be like, yes, God. You know, uh, active worshipers, people that the lives have been touched and transformed, right? But it takes time. It takes time to grow a garden. It takes time to wait on sunshine and rain. To depend. How do you raise a real farmer that cares more about the soil than the product. It doesn't mean that a real farmer doesn't care about the product, but a true farmer, right? In my, in my opinion, a Jesus-led farmer, right? Will give up produce for a year to save the soil. How do we become that kind of people? Because that's the kind of person Jesus is, and that's who we're following. I was reminded of this story that I read years ago. It's about a man that went back to his grandfather's farm and decided to live on it the rest of his life and make all things new on it and grow it and bring it back to life. And, and he said, um, for many years, my walks have taken me down this old fence row in a wooded hollow on what once was my grandfather's farm. He says, and there's this, I noticed there's this battered old galvanized bucket just hanging on a fence post near the head of the hollow. And over the years, he says, I I never go by that old rusty bucket without looking inside. For what's going on in that bucket is the most momentous thing I know. It's the greatest miracle that I've ever heard of. It's actually making earth. Talking about making all things new, right? This is, he says, this is how it happens. The old bucket, probably hung by my grandfather, has actually been there for so many autumns and leaves have fallen around it and some have fallen into it or been carried into it by squirrels or mice and squirrels have he- eaten the meat of the nuts and left the shells and they and other animals have left their droppings. That's amazing, I love that. Especially if you extend that metaphor, right, to what we do even as a community or even as the church, right? How all things are made new. Droppings are a part of it. Animals just coming around, leaving their droppings. (laughs) Insects have flown into the bucket and died and decayed. Birds have scratched in it and left their droppings or perhaps a feather or two. I love how many times he says droppings. <laughs> this slow 
work of growth and death, gravity and decay, which is the chief work of the world, has by now produced in the bottom of the bucket several inches of black humus. And I look into that bucket with fascination because I am a farmer of sorts and an artist of sorts, and I recognize I recognize in there an artistry and a farming far superior to mine or to that of any human. And I've seen that process at work over and over in most of the land surface of the world. All creatures die into it and they live by it. It's a slow work. I love to go to Jesuit retreats. I've been trying to get Josh out to one, but then COVID hit. And I love to go for four days of silence. And there's this wonderful priest by the name of Father Larry Gillick that I mentioned earlier, who happens, I say happens to be blind because he, he can actually see better than most of us. And um, when he was in his... Um, when he was in his early 40s, he's in his late 70s now, but when he was in his early 40s, he, he actually um, was a bit depressed and he was, teaching, um, he was teaching poetry classes to freshmen guys at Creighton University. And, and he said most of, the, most of these guys, they hated poetry, number one, and they weren't much interested in trying to get their grades up, although most of them were not doing well in the class. And he said, so I was a little bit depressed teaching these guys poetry because none of them wanted to be there anyway, you know. And, and he said, uh, he said and, and so he, he, he was blinded when he was eight years old. He fell down, hit his head, and then blindness kind of happened. In. But one of the mornings, he said, I woke, I woke from a dream that I was having. And in the dream, the spirit of the Lord spoke to my spirit and said, Larry, why don't you run anymore? And that's all I heard. Why don't you run anymore? You loved running. That's what he heard. So I, he woke up and, he, and his, his response in, to that dream, he woke up from the dream and it was morning, and he said, well, I don't run anymore, Lord, because, you know, I'm blind. <laughs> and, and, uh, but he never heard anything back other than just that longing of God for him to do what he loved so much and enjoyed. It was almost like God wasn't taking a no. He said, um, so I couldn't, it was like God deposited it at my heart and I could make fun of the request as much as I wanted or the, the statement, but I, it kept, you've had that happen to you. It, it just kept growing inside of him. He said, so I got this idea. I started thinking all day, why don't I run anymore? I loved running. Well, you know, maybe shame or various, various things. So he gets this idea, he asks his poetry class, he says, does anybody in here run marathons? And uh, one of the guys was like, yeah, I run marathons. 
He said, would you like to earn extra credit? Because internally he knew he needed it, you know what I mean? So he said, would you like to learn, earn some extra credit in this class? He said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, well, then meet me at Tuesday, on Tuesday morning at the locker room. So what he did was he created a tether system. And he literally had a rope. And he tied himself to this kid. And then the kid led him and taught him how to run marathons. And from the time he was 40 to the last time I saw him, he's got to be close to 80 now. I don't know if he still does it. But from the time he was 40 to the last time I saw him, he's run a marathon at least once a year. Tied to somebody. You talk about breaking off shame, but also a slow process of making all things new again and breaking outside of the realm of like what we think is possible. God says, let's, yeah, let's, let's lift the roof off of what your possibility framework is. One time I was up there taking a walk and he just went running by me. And so I asked him later, I said, Father Gillick, how do you do that? He said, oh, well, they don't let me go do this all the time. But if I got a straight shot, sometimes they'll just let me go on my own. (laughs) I said, that is so special. And so I always love to bring friends, worship leaders, you know. But, you know, a lot of us worship leaders, we're used to lights and fanciness. And uh, we're used to lights and fanciness and all that stuff. And, and so I brought all these worship leaders with me to see Father Gillick. Of course, I was telling them all these stories about Father Gillick, and they were super amped to see him and excited. And so, so they had built a new center at the retreat house. And, uh, and, Father Gillick, he's not going to have somebody lead him to his chair to sit down and give his first talk. So I have all these worship leaders. They're sitting around, and they're used to, like, Atlanta-style, Nashville, L.A.-style, like, ministers, which is, you know, like, not what they were going to experience. (laughs) So Father Gillick, they introduced Father Gillick as our retreat director for the weekend, and the first thing that happened was Father Gillick, he walks up and there's a wall and he walks up and he runs right into the wall because it was a new facility, so he didn't know it yet. He runs into the wall. And one of my buddies, Michael Lothar, who was with me later on that week, he, he asked him, he said, Father Gillick, he was kind of nervous about venturing out into a new space in his life. And uh, Father Gillick looked at him and said, said, Micah, take a look at my face. And Micah looked at his face. He said, you see all those scars? Micah said, yeah. He said, if I just sat around and didn't venture out in new spaces, right? If I was so afraid of getting these scars, I'd never, I'd never do anything. I'd just sit around. I have so many scars because I, I just venture out. Go for it, Micah. Micah was so encouraged by that. But there he is. He makes this entry, runs into the wall, works his, what an entry, you know? 
for all those Enneagram threes, if you know the Enneagram, it's like all the performance people, they're like, or the sevens, they're like, oh God, I don't know what to do with this. Just, he's making his way down the wall, ends up hitting his head on a light that's off the wall, then finally makes his way to his seat. And we, of course, don't know what to do. Do we help him? Do we, uh, because that could be like, dishonoring almost you know that's the feeling as us guys we were like do we help him do we not there's all this tension in the room and he just let the tension be there and then he finally got his way to his seat he puts his braille bible over his lap he flips on his lapel microphone which is also awkward it's just like (laughs) and then the first words out of his mouth i didn't even know it at the time but it was a mary oliver poem Sits down, flips that lapel on, Braille Bible over his lap. And he starts and he says, things, things take the time they take. I look at over all of my friends that are worship leaders. They're all looking at me. Tears are running down their face. Because the moment had so much tension and his resolve wasn't, I'm going to resolve all that tension for you. It was just. Things take the time they take. I later on read that from Mary Oliver. It's actually the full quote is, it's just one little small little poem she wrote. She just says, things take the time they take. Don't worry. How many roads did St. Augustine follow before he became St. Augustine? Period. That's the quote. Things take the time they take. I was reading um, a conversation book by uh, Conversations with Wendell Berry. And he was asked by a person that, you know, because Wendell Berry's written 60 some odd books and lots of articles and. He's an amazing writer, if you've ever read his stuff. Uh, Poet. And so this person was asking with really great intentions, Wendell, why don't you use a computer? Because he refuses to use a computer. He only uses, he's in his 90s, he only uses a typewriter. Still to this day. And then has his manuscripts, you know, brought into the computer world by somebody else. And, um... Why don't you use, why don't you use like a computer? Why, you could write so much more if you used a computer. This is what he's, listen to this. He says this, he goes, he says, well, I actually think that would be a really bad mistake. That's his answer. I thought, well, okay, I won't listen to this guy. Maybe he's just grumpy, you know. He's, and then this is how he answers them. I even love this with people that are really wise often. It takes a little time. You ask them a question and they start talking about plumbing or something. You know what I mean? It's like they, they go over here and then they take you on this journey to give you the answer. You're probably going to have to wait for a good story or a parable. <laughs> right? This is what he says. This is his answer. You could write so much faster 
This is what he said. This is his answer to you could write so much faster if you had a computer. He says, well, you see, when, when you have a farm, it really doesn't make any difference how wound up you get. If you're going to grow corn, then you have to, you're going to have to slow down to the speed of corn. If you're an artist, you have a certain capacity to work well. Your own speed and endurance. That's what he says. He says, I've never bought the argument made to me repeatedly that if I had a computer, I could write faster. He says, I know beyond any doubt. I love this. I know beyond any doubt that I can write, and he's in his 90s, so he probably knows, right? I know beyond any doubt that I can, I, can, I can write as well as I can write at a sustained rate of two or three pages a day. If I wrote, if I wrote more than that, my work would actually be worse. It wouldn't be better. The refusal to speed up, to hitch myself to these mechanisms that impose speed on us, is simply a way, it's simply a way of me staying in real time. Now listen, it's, it's the way I stay in real time. Which spoke to me, because I don't want to in worship, or in writing, or in pastoring, or in ministry, I don't want to get out of real time. I want to stay in real time. Life of Jesus is all about real time. It's not about escaping real time. It's about staying. Jesus is never about escape. Entertainment, it's never about entertainment. Because entertainment is actually, it's actually, by its very root meaning, it means to detain you all from entry. Me from entry. That's what entertainment is, is to detain from entry. We aren't entertainers. We are inviters. We invite. We illuminate. We invite. This is what Jesus calls us to. Everything's an invitation. Even distractions. Even interruptions. He says, if I hitch myself to the mechanisms that impose speed on us, simply a way of staying within real time, the time in which things grow, in which good work is done. Taking the adjective good off the process might speed things up. But if you aren't interested in working well, why work? I've been reading a fascinating book about wine, he says. Adventures on the Wine Route by a Californian named Kermit Lynch. I'm reading this because it's also, this is how you get the information. They take you on a journey. People that have wisdom take you on a journey and you have to wait for the answers. It just don't come like this in a little, you know, now we, we, we have the, we have the patience of what our social media is training us to have patience for. So now what is it going to be like 30 seconds? That's our patience, you know, or 15. And then what is it going to be? You know, it's, we got to develop muscles to receive so he says, he says this, he says, he writes that specialists are now telling vintners how they can speed up the winemaking process with heat and chemicals. He says, the point that Mr. Lynch makes is that one can speed up the winemaking process, but, 
What one actually has as a result is not properly speaking wine. It's actually a kind of expensive mouthwash. Lynch talks about wine as an artifact and about how impressionable it is. Real wine, good wine. Don't think about wine if you're not a wine person. Just think about, think about the greater metaphor, how it applies to you. Whatever wine you're making, the sermons, the songs, the ideas, instead of the snap of the finger, Right? Good wine is something that comes about in its own time. Listen to this. If the vintner wants real wine, he or she will have, will have to accept its rate of becoming. Lord, have mercy on the farmer in the field. Lord, have mercy on the poor, the weak, the real. Lord, have mercy, for we have played the devil's game. Lord, have mercy like sunshine and rain. I remember I wrote a song in my 30s. It was a weird song. It was, it was I'm not... The second verse of it says, I'm moving slower. I take a little longer. But I'm healing deeper. I'm feeling stronger. And it's tearing down defenses and opening my senses to the wonder. Of a father crying out, come come now, let's reason together. Come now. The father's calling you home. So when we follow Jesus through the Gospels, we find Luke 18, 16, for instance. I love this. Let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. What I love about that is that, that, that his disciples and everybody around him, were so, they were so frustrated by how that was interrupting Jesus' flow. Well, you see and let the children come to me isn't, isn't just children shouldn't be around Jesus. It's that, it's that children, children by their very nature have a way of slowing you down. This is why often what you'll find grandparents, at least in our family structure, grandparents and children, they get each other. Everybody in their 30s and 40s, we're all screwing up the world. The grandparents, they get each other. The child doesn't know any better. The grandfather or the grandmother, they know all too well. And so they get each other. Why? Because everything is at, it's at the rate of becoming. It's just, it doesn't, especially children when they're very young. Right? I remember uh, an older woman in our church once when, when our kids were real little she said to us, let your youngest child take your family on a walk if you want to have an experience. 
and we did it. We, it was Lucy. She was our youngest at the time, and we let her take us all on a walk at our favorite place to go walking. Well, within just a few minutes, the experiment was over because everybody was so frustrated because a little two-year-old or three-year-old, the way, I mean, little toddlers, they'll just anything, like the red keyboard. And their direction, they'll go this way and then back this way, and then there's no straight line with those kids. You know what I mean? And they're leading us, and Sam is already to the spots that he wants to get to. This is slowing him down. Jesus says, no, 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 guys, don't. Let the children come to me. Jesus is constantly being willing to be interrupted. And then so often, if you notice that about Jesus, just read the Gospels with that in mind. Some, how many times Jesus says, it's okay, I'll be interrupted. I'm not afraid to be slowed down. Because what? Because things take the time they take. Allow the rate of becoming. Even this interruption right now, if it, how we respond and our attitude to it, your attitude, my attitude, to even interruptions in our daily life, it's not that every interruption is an invitation, but most will be based on our attitude. I, I've always loved this. We sang about it earlier. I've been the blind man on the road. You know, blind man Barnabas. He's been blind since he was born, and yet Jesus asks, what can I do for you? Wow. I love how he slows himself down. What can I do for you? Even that is, shows the slow nature of God. I remember asking the Lord, like, why did you ask him what can you do for him? And the Lord answered me slowly. Because when I asked him, it was in the daytime, and he answered me at three in the morning. And it was one of those moments that I could wake up and write it down or I could forget it forever. And I remember I got up and I wrote it down. It was like a whisper in the wind that said, because I don't want to just fix humanity. I want to know you. Jesus could have just waved his hand over everything, but he didn't do that. He didn't assume or presume to know what he could do for Barnabas. He asked Barnabas, what can I do for you? Try to answer that question sometime in your own private time. What can I do for you, Jason? It's harder to answer that question than we think. Listen for the Lord to ask you that question. What can I do for you? Try it sometime today. Because sometimes we don't even know what we need him to do for us, if we're really honest. And Jesus wants to push us into that, and that is a slow work as well. I love how Jesus always, in Mark 1, we see him right away. Very in the, early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus gets up and leaves the house and went off to a solitary place to pray. It's like he's, all, he's like always slowing things down. Just about the time he feeds the 5,000, he gets on a boat to get away. Just about the time he does this miracle, he gets on a boat or walks away. He's always trying to slow the momentum down. I love how we teach children this about God. And Jesus, he's standing at the door and knocking, right? He's standing at the door and he's knocking. 
Some churches still have that picture. Jesus standing at the door of your heart and knocking. I just think that's such a beautiful picture that Jesus, you know, we live in a world that it's like, push the door down. Ah, grab them. Right? Make them believe. And yet we still have this. Let me show you Jesus. He still knocks. He's the God of everything. He created it all. He never barges in. He's slow enough to knock. No presumption. No assuming. Knocking at your door, he says, and I'm standing knocking at your door. And whoever opens the door and lets me in. Think about the slow work of that. Think about how long he has to knock at some people's door. Or our door. And whoever lets me in, I will come in and I will eat with, I will eat with them and they'll eat with me. I'm not going to push it down. I'm going to wait until you open it. Another just little thought is... Jesus knows, the Bible says, what you need before you even ask. But yet, he still waits for me to ask. Exodus 4.10. I love how it talks about Moses, the great deliverer, right? And I think my whole life I maybe thought that this was a lacking. This verse illuminated some sort of lacking in Moses. And that God, I've always thought, oh yeah, God just overlooked the lack. I love this verse. And Moses said to the Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. And I'm slow of tongue. Just that. I, I, I think more and more I'm realizing it's like God saying, that's actually exactly what I'm looking for. That's actually exactly what I need, Moses. I don't need fast talkers. I need somebody that would be... Have you ever noticed that the... Like the more you wait in life, the more you listen? Like even right now, I I speak better the more I listen. Like even in a moment. Even in a moment that I'm giving a talk. If I can hear, I can speak. If you can't hear, you're not going to speak well. 
And a lot of us, right, we talk at such a rate, such a speed. But we're actually not hearing. We're not waiting, listening. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. And God says, that's actually not lacking for you. That's exactly what I need. And I think in our world today, we're too... the. the the pollution that is happening to us, we don't even realize it because the information that's coming, it's coming so fast. My son, he's 12, Oliver, he was looking at his Apple computer. I mean, these should be banned from church. I'm sorry. They should, like, I'm just kidding, but isn't that funny? Like, should we really trust something with a bite out of it, an apple with a bite out of it? That's what Oliver said to me. Look what they did to us. Look what they did to us. Am I kidding? I'm kidding. I, I, like all, I like technology. I think it can be really helpful, but should we really trust an apple with a bite out of it? And what has you just had to know? You just had to know. And the information age is it's destroying us. Because you're not meant to know all that. You're not meant to know all that. You cannot handle it. You can't handle it. So what's the answer? We got to get away daily. We got to spend time. We've got to cultivate a space where we don't let those things push us anymore. Wait. Don't, even sometimes, don't you have to do this sometimes? In, in ministry, sometimes people want to share something with me. And I just say, have you ever had to do this where you're just like, I don't need to know that information. I just don't need to know it. You don't need to know it. You know? Listen to news enough to get the orient, orient yourself to the, to the way the world sees the world. This is kind of what's going on. And then stop with the information overload. And go to the Psalms. Go to your neighbor. Go to your friend. Go to your family. Go to your wife. Go to your children. Have conversation. Have dialogue. What are you seeing? Hope in the future. Anyway. God created us to be farmers, to grow. I only have two minutes and 26 seconds. Can I sing a song over them? Do we have enough time, Josh? I mean, you're the boss. Okay. So I was thinking about this, that just even raising a family. That's what Mother Teresa said. She goes, if you want to change the world, just go home and raise a family. That's very powerful. Just go home and raise a family. Go home and raise four children. Like I have or five children or two children or whatever you can do. Just go and raise a family. Because the process of that. Me and I had to, last week I had a moment as a parent where, you know, you, you, you're, you go for the non-creative control. Right? Instead of really prayerfully responding to your child in a moment, you go for the, well, this is what's going to happen. Bang. And just yesterday I woke up and I was praying and I was so convicted about that that I had to call my, that child and, 
and just apologize. It wasn't like I did something so horrible, but it was just apologizing and saying, I went for the cheap, fast thing. I got the response I wanted out of you. But I don't know if I really parented you well in that moment. I just controlled you. And what I really needed to do was wait for a moment, slow down, look for the creative, you know, breath of God, and be exactly what God needed me to be as a parent in your life at that moment. And I'm sorry. It was a great conversation. It was quick. It was like two minutes. But sometimes we're just racing ahead and we go for the cheap. But even raising children and every, you know, there's an entire generation now that, you know, I get so excited when my daughter Emma's like, I want to have, you know, children. And, you know, that every time we have a marriage celebration, the church should be dancing in the streets because it's, it's hope for the future. And it's a slow hope for the future, right? It's going to take time. And, but that's how we change, we change the world. It's like Mother Teresa says, you want to change the world? Go home and raise a family. I love that because raising a family takes so much time. It's not a speech that you put out on YouTube. It's not even a worship song. It's the hard work, the, the farming of parenting. And it's the work that the children do on the parents too. So I wrote a song about it, and, uh, and we'll, we'll finish with this today. God bless you guys.